Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler's here, Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen it. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. You're very welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. I know what you're thinking, new music. What's that all about? Well, it's a big week for us. Change, we fear change. As we celebrate 250 episodes, those are just a few of the great moments we've had over the course of those 250 programs. To mark this occasion, we're going to give you six shows this week. We'll be bringing very, or I should say, giving away very special second captain survival kits, mm-hmm. including just the essentials, Murph, robes, darts, mm. mugs, pencils, all emblazoned with the second captain's logo. I never leave my home without darts of some description. Second captains, if possible, but darts of some description, always. And we'll be looking back at some of our favourite guests today, Ken. I'm going to take you back to just our third ever show. Uh, yeah. Can you believe it was this long ago? We spoke to Eamon Dunphy about the Ireland-England rivalry, if you remember. This clip uh, first visits many of the football matches of the past between the countries before Dunphy focuses very emotionally on the loss at Daly Mount Park in 1957, which he tried to go and see as a young lad. You're going to hear Philip Green on commentary for that one. And the Gardaí gathering around there, and once more the face of English football was... Uh, Left receiver one is they're ripping up uh, pieces of wood there as well and pelting them down on the guards. And it really is, I think the referee might have to uh, call a halt to proceedings. Jack Charles will stand in the uh, Lansdowne Road Stadium down by the Wanderers position. Brilliant rather. The referee has stopped the game. 27 minutes of the match gone and the players are being taken from the pitch. There you can see the misunderstanding. The once more, the travelling English fans have disgraced themselves. Simon's chasing it, turning it back for the goal, Hamley has it, they could have it, they shoot, it's blocked it, it's a goal, it's a goal, oh! And the best Charles is going for the high ball, trying to knock it down for Houtana, goal! Ireland have scored! Way out! Staunton plays it in the game towards Tony Cascarino! 1-1! And goes Quinn, 
Yes, it's there! Has he blown the final whistle? Yes, he has! And the place erupts at Stuttgart! The Gars Ireland have beaten England by a goal to nil. The Irish substitute, Spanish Jack Charlton. It was a phenomenal kind of uh, idea that we could we could beat England. Wow! But it was not there was nothing nationalist about it. That's the point I'd be making. It was just a sporting thing. Giles, John would have grown up with that idea, you know, for example, and he was a great sort of folk hero in his, when John was young, you know, when he was about 12, <laughs> everyone in the city knew about him, but no one had seen him, you know. But he, it was a kind of classic Irish street footballer. It was a street game here, you know. Oh, listen to that crowd roar. Ireland have scored after three minutes. Mixed the scorer, leading 1-0. And the crowd has gone mad here. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't get into the Ireland-England game. Couldn't, because it was a lift over the style job, and I couldn't get one that day. So, leg it back to the house and listen to the radio. One minute left for play. Ireland leading 1-0. Um, and what we needed that day was to beat England, and we qualified for the World Cup. Um, and we won the up. Flags, all over the ground. As Godwin kicks out, away to the right. It was just extraordinary, uh, and with, in the in the last minute, Tom Finney got the ball. And he went down the right wing, crossed the ball, and a fellow called John Atio. He played for Bristol City, scored. It was just the most extraordinary thing. Philip Green didn't know what to say. There was no applause in the ground. And I was sitting there crying. We were just dead. Last minute, England, again. It's like, whew, that was a deep, deep, deep shock to uh, everybody. <laughs> we, we didn't get over it for weeks. Uh, it was terrible. I mean, it's like, that's why I think football and sport in general, but soccer, all, all sport, of course. But the effect it has on kids when their team loses is deep. The score is a draw. Ireland won, England won, and so England have qualified for the World Cup Series. Ireland beaten just in the last second of extra time, of overtime. Yeah, that was Eamon Dunphy speaking to us in one of our first ever programmes here at the Irish Times about Irish attitudes to the English um, in the 50s, 60s and even more recently than that and to England, Dunphy himself. It was interesting there, I thought, Ken, that he said it wasn't a nationalistic thing when they were trying to beat England in the 1950s. I would say it became that mm. by the time Euro 88 came around or at least was a nationalist element to it. Now, maybe that's... Dunphy's own sensibilities there. He very much felt that 
he was liberated by moving over to the UK. He enjoyed English people. He enjoyed that life, whereas not everybody in Ireland would have shared those views. Yeah. I mean, I would have assumed that there was quite a lot of nationalism involved in any Ireland England sporting event at that time, certainly. Uh, but then again, I wasn't there. <laughs> yeah. He was, so. Just the advantage of talking to the people who were, who were around at the time. I love the story of trying to get the lift over the styles and it not happening. It seemed to be kind of a 50-50 toss-up there. You, you head along, you might get a lift over from a... Your dad's mate or something like that, but other than that, you're running back home to try and have a listen ah, to it on the radio. Chance your arm on, you know. Yep. The mention of Dunphy brings us nicely onto our announcement of tomorrow's special guest. I'm delighted to say that we're going to have Bill O'Hurley in studio with us, fresh from finishing his last ever World Cup for RTE. We'll chat about that, about his own role in some of the most momentous times in the history of Irish sport, how he prepared for those. Loads of great stuff. Bill O'Hurley in studio for an extra edition of the podcast tomorrow. Thanks very much, by the way, for listening and for supporting the show. We've had over 6 million SoundCloud plays since this time last year. Uh, if you're listening in Ireland, or if you're a P-Bezoer, even more so, thanks very much. And do spread the word wherever you are listening. I don't imagine the money man can to get onto today's news at Real Madrid are given to huge amounts of introspection when it comes to their work. I'd, it's hard to picture them agonising over the feelings of the people at the other end of their hard-balling tactics. But mm. even they, even the Real Madrid money men, have to feel a shred of guilt at their treatment of Manchester United over Angel Di Maria. 60 million, 70 million, 150 million. We can just keep driving this up. These guys are going to pay it. Yeah. It's ineptitude that would melt the hardest of hearts. (laughs) Not quite. I mean, uh, you know, I think think Real Madrid can live with themselves if that's what what, uh, it takes, you know, to break even, say, on the bringing in James Rodriguez. Um, Another player who's represented by George Mendes... Uh, incidentally, just like Angel Di Maria. Been a really good summer for him, and he's still got a week to go. Um, so yeah, there could there could yet be more, but um, if he manages to, to both buy and sell a 60, 64 million pound player from, from Real Madrid, ah, uh, you know, yeah. he's, he's good at uh, whatever it is. Whatever magic dust he sprinkles on these football administrators to get them to uh, start to display such irrational exuberance, um, he's probably the envy of his profession. It's time for Ken Early's Report on Sport. Where do you want to start? Did you see the Match of the Day documentary on? I know you usually like that kind of thing. I do like that kind of thing, Ken. I like it so much that I have it recorded. It's quite busy over the weekend. I haven't had a chance to, to watch it yet, but uh, I will do tonight. Should, should we have this conversation tomorrow? Oh, you saw it? Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, what, do, what do you think? Well... It wasn't very good, was it? It was just... It was like a lot of people. I'll tell you what, Ken. It's an integral part of a lot of people's Saturday night. A lot of people used to go home and watch Match of the Day on a Saturday night. I'll tell you, I'd be in the pub, but I'd leave the pub. To go and watch Match of the Day. To watch Match of the Day. It was like everybody was watching Match of the Day back in the day. Uh, And even uh, right up till this day. Mm -hmm. Uh, Apart from brief interregnum when ITV... Um, stole the rights but of course they made a terrible mess of it um, uh, putting it on at the wrong time people don't want to watch football recorded highlights of football at 7 o'clock everybody knows that how could you make such a basic error there was two my favourite line in it was definitely Alan Shearer's line when he taught, when he asked about Guy Lineker or he was talking about Guy Lineker and he said Lineker you know he's just been amazing you know and he's he's done he's been a player a pundit a presenter oh all the peace. <laughs> it was, it was, it was he suddenly realised for the first time hang on every job Alan uh, Gary Lineker has done has begun with the letter P like Cher was like the cookie monster or was something like this you know 
His head is kind of swirling with these kind of. Just imagine the the fevered debate in the, the, uh, you know, in the editing room. In the editing room, you know. What do you think? Should we leave in Alan Shearer realizing that all of those words he just said begin with P or. Oh, it's strong, it's strong. It is. We should leave it. We have to leave that. I would love to see the bits of the Jose Mourinho interview that they left on the cutting room floor because the bits that were included, the bit that was included was. They're talking about the music, you know, the famous match of the day music. And I didn't, I didn't realize, Owen, that there was a time when they tried to uh, re- replace the music with a slightly different mix right. of the same music, causing national uproar. Uh, and eventually they, uh, they decided to change it back. Um, but Jose Mourinho uh, was there, you know, sitting in his office at Chelsea saying, oh, that music, you know. When you hear that music, you just think, match of the day. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, I was assuming Mourinho was going to give it a bit of the old English football, you know, old maid cycling to church, you know, in the morning mist or whatever, that kind mm. of, you know, throw in a few cliched phrases about English football, but he literally just said the title of the program. Like as though if you heard the theme tune to Dallas, you just think, Dallas. <laughs> I thought Mourinho was definitely phoning in this. Mm. These comments on Manchester So it was just a little bit too self-congratulatory by the it was. It just didn't have anything well, yeah, happening. There was, there was just nothing in it. Everyone just said Even that they really liked Manchester Even some great stock old footage, anything like that? Well, I mean, see, the, the, problem, the, the problem with the stock footage is, is so familiar now. Yeah, it's so... All, there was no, no nothing... Surprising. Nothing, but there weren't even any... Like, the goals that they showed from the 1960s are the goals that we've seen. You always see. Yeah. You always yeah, see. Yeah, you know, yeah. like Ronnie Radford... Like best lobbing the two Spurs lads on the goal. Yeah. Bobby Charlton whacking one in against Spurs or something in the charity shield or something like that. The, that girl's good enough to win the... Yeah. FA but I mean, it was literally, if you sat down and thought about it for five minutes, what are the goals that you've seen from the Match of the Archive? These are all the goals Surprise. that you've seen. Well, you know, they've got... didn't put a bit more into it than that. You know, Barry Davis. Um, what do you think Barry Davis was asked to talk about his moment in commentary? Look at his face. Was that yes. Barry Davis? Yes. Oh, interesting. Friday. Very interesting. Look at his face. Just look at his face. Like, and you kind of think Barry Davis had a had a great career, you know, and it's just reduced to this one YouTube clip of uh, when when his voice went slightly funny. I don't know. I mean, I suppose it's the, the the nature of a commentator's art is that like it sort of happens over a really long period of time. Yeah. And it's you have to, if you have to reduce it to one highlight, then you're going to get that. Well, I, I just think that if there was some sort of difference of opinion or a difference of experience in the people that have that were asked to contribute, but everyone said the exact same yeah. to me. That's I don't know, in it, you know. Yeah. Is okay, so neither of you are fans. Well, I, I might. I think I have to judge for myself, so I will. Watch it. You'll watch it. At some point in the next day or two, again. Okay? We mentioned Jose Mourinho, one of the contributors to that, uh, obviously doing his, his actual <laughs> job there over the weekend and his disgustingly good Chelsea team uh, beating Leicester. Now, OK, maybe not in the most impressive way you've ever seen, but I think there was a significant moment in the game. For me, the, the moment went, well, I mean, there's obviously Costa scoring, continuing, continuing to score is very good for Chelsea. Um, I read somebody, and I wish I could remember who it was, making the comparison between him and Fernando Torres when, I think it may have been Andy Hunter actually in the Guardian, kind of Fernando Torres when he was at Liverpool. Um, and there's something of that about the way that Costa um, is playing. 
And I mean, obviously, what, 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 what I mean, besides scoring goals, what's the the, the kind of the running, the, the you know being a threat all over the place, and obviously the, the the couple of goals he scored have just been hit with a lot of conviction. I mean, there was a great still photo actually of the goal that he scored the other day, where he just appeared to be kicking Casper Schmeichel into the net, uh, which was a which was an illusory impression. He he kicked the ball past Casper Schmeichel. It just looked as though Schmeichel was flying with the ball into the net. But you know, forceful player. He's but the the big moment in this game was. When David Nugent got through, Chelsea got caught up the field after it set piece and there was a break. David Nugent one-on-one against Courtois. Same result as when Lionel Messi went one-on-one against Courtois in the World Cup quarterfinal, which is to say a save by Courtois. And you see, it's when a team like Chelsea has a goalkeeper this good, they're going to end up breaking a lot of people's hearts, I think. Yeah, you can kind of see. Do, do, I don't know if there ever was a debate about whether it was going to be Czech or Courtois this year. No. It was painted as such, but I think when Courtois excelled as he did for Atletico, the decision was made. He also seems to have everything you want in a goalkeeper in terms of personality and all the, all the things that Czech at his very best probably brought. Yeah, every every single attribute and kind of this freakish Michael Phelps type physique, which is, uh, I think, probably going to pick them up a lot of points. Mourinho, though, was, was obviously... Uh, ideally in a place to criticise the team. He's like, this isn't good enough. This is rubbish, you know, for my team. Effectively slamming them. It's always good to be able to slam the team that's just done quite well. Uh, creating the impression that you you want more. I need more. We were lazy. Uh, we need more. Uh, but also came up with the idea of uh, um, saying that he, what he, is, he looks forward to the day when we have timeouts in football. Um, he says, how many years have we had to wait for goal line technology? I hope I'm still in football when they give the coach the chance to stop the game during the first half once and again once during the second half because you can m- then make the game so much better. So I would have stopped it today after 10 minutes. You know, to re- I mean, this would be terrible. I, I, I don't know if Mourinho is even serious. Even he, is he even serious about that? I mean, the idea that maybe some of the decisions in football might be left up to the players rather than the manager trying to control absolutely everything. Would that be... Is that, I can imagine Mourinho himself really enjoying timeouts. Yeah, I, oh, I don't see. Imagine like yeah. m- little Mourinho running onto the field and sort of becoming the centre of attention on the field, ordering everyone around in front of yeah. forty-five thousand people, as opposed to in the dressing room where he usually has to do. It. Well, I, I don't think it's mischief making. I mean, I think it's perfectly natural for a person who, well, I mean, you're in a job, and the job specification is to tell the players how to play mm. and you know, get good results out of them. It's it's not mischief-making by him, I presume, to suggest that this is a good idea because he would have to back himself in a situation like that to actually make a difference. He thinks it will be a good idea. It's more power, more power, more money. Well, I mean, the fact that it's, you know, compelling sporting theatre with all of the players sitting, touching the hem of his garment, gathered around him on their knees. I mean, I'm sure that's not what he's actually I'd love to see it in hurling because Brian Cody, as we all know, doesn't go in for tactics, Apparently, no. all those men behind the ball uh, in the last in their in their semi final, and um, you know all the thought that went into mm. the matchups in previous games. That they're not really tactics. It's just go out and hurl according to the popular. Yeah, once once we've done three weeks of intensive tactical preparation, <laughs> yeah. just go out and hurl. So I'd like to see if that, if that that was true of Brian Cody's Kildare. I'd love to see them say say they're playing against Clare, and you, there's a timeout called, mm. and David Fitzgerald just has diagrams all over the place, iPads out. Bit, bit of old school pen and paper all, just individually talking to everybody Brian yeah. Cody just standing there just takes out a, a, a Hamlet cigar and just you can just hear the music in the background of just Brian Cody having a is it a Hamlet moment is that what they were called those yeah. cigars yeah. Yeah, uh, with, the, with the ads the air and the G-string yeah. yeah so I mean I think that um, 
maybe that's it. You know, the time outlasts the exact length of time that Brian Cody <laughs> takes to smoke a cigar. And uh, then we're back straight into it. We were talking about Di Maria at the top of the show. Anything you want to add at this point? Well, just uh, Manchester United's performance against Sunderland. I mean, a lot of criticism now of them. But I think Van Hal was actually quite clear when he arrived. You know, all my teams, whenever I've taken over, it's always been a really slow start. So don't expect anything different. However, the title is a possibility. You know, he he will say he's kind of he kind of was saying I'm not sure about the title. <laughs> I mean, the thing about the Premier League, as Mourinho was pointing out, uh, is that there are more. It's not just one team that you have to beat. You have to beat. There's at least Chelsea and Manchester City are obviously stronger than Manchester United and Arsenal, um, probably too, and Liverpool arguably so as well. So it's you know you you, you drop a lot of points early on. Suddenly it's already you can forget about the title. Van Persie was interesting after the game. It was put to him that, look, you know this guy, you know his tactics, yeah. you know everything about him. Van, but Pers- is it, yeah. Van Persie was aware of the trap being set in that question. Very, yeah, he's, he's a very savvy media operator, is Van Persie. Yeah. He's not going to land in the trap. So he said, listen, everybody here knows what he wants. He's very clear, he's a very direct coach, so that's not a problem. I don't need to go around explaining him to the to the players. It is kind of interesting, though, that, you know, everything's all right last season. You know, it's please just give us time. You know, it's okay. It's okay. We're fine. We move on to the next game. Whereas immediately this year, it's like, yeah, listen, we got to do better. You know, the out of you know our manager. If I say nothing here, then people are just going to presume that the manager yeah. is terrible. Imagine Whereas Robin, this year, it's it's yeah. a totally different thing. Now, what I would like to see though is that you know the, the sort of the Dutch model of post-match interviewing becomes the norm now with Manchester United where people are having pot shots at each other all over the shop. That would be entertaining. I don't see it really happening. Though. I, th- I thought it was interesting Van Gaal really stood around for ages waiting for Jeff Shreves to finish, you know? I mean, you know the way Ferguson used to do it. Um, and, you know, Shreves would just feel so lucky to be able to ask four questions before Ferguson turned on his heel. Well done, Jeff. <laughs> you know? Uh, whereas Van Gaal was, was kind of standing there looking at Shreves going, any more questions? You know, I'll, I'll, I'll stand here and talk all day. Um, the one which is great although Van Gaal does have an unappealing tendency unappealing I think in terms of the agenda of British television to actually start talking in depth about the the formation and tactics and the uh, you know the system he loves talking about that in a way which you can almost sense Jeff Shreve's eyes glazing over a little bit uh, <laughs> when, he, when he's when he's saying that kind of stuff Jeff you know. Shreve just wants to know about the refereeing decisions well, there's the, the refereeing decision. There was something he was asking about. Ashley oh. Young, maybe? Uh, Ashley Young, yes. The diving, you know. And Van Gaal, you know, defended, defended Young in a sort of, uh, with a piece of sophistry. Well, there was contact, yes. He did jump into him, I suppose. But uh, you know what I mean, anyway. But there, uh, Di Maria, yeah, we, are, we already spoke about him. The matches um, starting off this weekend, Real Madrid, not particularly good in their defeat to Atletico in the Spanish Super Cup on Friday. Although, James Rodriguez... James Rodriguez, why am I going to stop saying James Rodriguez? James <laughs> Rodriguez, uh, I thought looked really good. I mean, they're, they're talking about, effectively, the, the injustice of this Di Maria thing from his point of view. I mean, from a player who, who played really well, uh, an unimpeachably uh, good season from him. Um, really, really effective, really exciting. Best player in the Champions League final, shunted out the door because essentially Hamza Rodriguez is a more exciting young player from the World Cup. He's a World Cup star. And Dean Marina. I mean, they say it's Alfredo Rilano, I think one of the Spanish columnists, um, I saw Andy Mitten mention this, had said, well, Dean Marina doesn't sell shirts. And I always wonder when 
they say this, if they literally mean sell shirts or if they or if selling shirts is just a, now a metaphor for a more general kind of marketability, mm. you know what I mean? A more general sort of, is Dean Marie the kind of guy who play, people around the world are like, oh, you know, I might watch this match because Angel Dean Marie is playing in it. Which I think is the case, you know, if, if, if you switch on, it's Barcelona against some terrible team. You watch for 15 minutes to see if Leon Messi scores a goal. You know, I mean, that's almost, yeah, it's yeah. almost the only reason to watch them. Well, they've, they've added a couple of players now, but it's almost the main reason why you would watch is to see what Messi does. And, you know, maybe it, it, it speaks to our sh- the shallowness of our engagement with the game. I suppose, you know. I don't think so. I think it, it, it might do in part, but I think that speaks to the paucity of opposition and the coldness with which Barcelona, I know, in fairness, they didn't manage it last year on every occasion, but generally they'll take apart these inferior opponents and there's nothing much to it. We all love seeing these great Barcelona players performing in the toughest games against Real, against Atletico now in the Champions League, but there is something a bit cold about the four, five, six nils. Mm. And um, therefore, when the minimum, the, the little bonus you want there, or the consolation is that at least if Messi scores a few of them, yeah, we, it, it confirms his greatness in our mind. I get to see this. I won't even have to wait for the vine. Yeah. I can just, I can just actually see it as it happens. Um, so, so I guess the hope would be that Team Maria. I mean, I mean, the, the point here would be, I guess, Hamas would be more the kind of player who you might think, well, let's see what happens when he gets the ball. Mm. Um, more so maybe than Team Maria, which is, you know, which is which is what that comment about selling shirts is really referring to. It doesn't mean. Well, I, I mean, what I think it should be referring to, it doesn't mean that actually De Vries is, is not as... He may even be a more effective footballer. He may be making more of a difference more regularly in the games more often than Hamas. Certainly, he's he's a better athlete. Well, it can be to do with charisma, though, also. I mean, there's mm. a star power element, there's the, the, the Beckham factor, and James Rodriguez seems to have it. I don't know if De Maria doesn't, but James seems to be... Uh... Are we just saying that he's better looking than Angel Di Maria? Well, do you think he is? Yeah, I think so, yeah. His, uh, Di Maria's uh, features are quite pointy. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I, you know, I, I actually mean it in that in that respect, though, that, you know, charisma, like... Charisma just looks is what you're saying. Well, no. You charisma that. is a very easy thing to define for someone that you've met. It's very easy to say that I met someone today and he had he was extremely charismatic. I mean, I've... I don't speak the same language as James Rodriguez or Angel Di Maria so I mean I I can't say that he's a charismatic person yeah and we probably don't know enough I think you can judge those things just based I don't think you have to know somebody I think you can say somebody's charismatic based on seeing them on TV or seeing them operate yeah see, see them be interviewed but we you probably know, haven't I, seen enough of James yeah, to know ex- that yeah. exactly you thought that Di Maria Modric midfield duo was a bit uh, sort of Nosferatu for your taste <laughs> <laughs> FW Murnau brings you <laughs> Um, <laughs> a lot of shadows in that face. Well, he is. He he was from the a Vi- that's a movie from the Weimar Republic, I think. And this seems to be the transfer from the Weimar Republic, by the way, in which every time you look at it, it seems to have gone up by another five million. Um, but you know, look, that's uh, that's by the by. Spanish league, uh, the German league gets going as well. Yeah, this, and the fastest ever goal scored in the German league is knocked in against Borussia Dortmund by Bayer Leverkusen after nine seconds, um, which kind of put their optimistic yeah, pre-season optimism sort of knocked out cold right there after nine seconds and they go on to lose uh, and Bayern obviously won so uh, things already looking ominous there but uh, tonight there's a big match obviously in the Premier League um, and a bit of a bit of uh, taking shots at each other Liverpool and Man City over the 
weekend. Maybe this is going to become a, a new thing. Liverpool versus Manchester City, the, the rivals. And Pellegrini suggesting, well, we always knew they were going to blow it. We were confident that they would. We, uh, he was, I was absolutely sure, even after we lost there, that they wouldn't win the four games they needed to win. I was absolutely convinced of it. Uh, which he's saying after the fact. Uh, Rogers uh, insisting that, in fact, inexperience uh, and mistakes had nothing to do with it. The problem was depth. Depth, of course, being the problem that he has addressed with the, all the players that they've signed. I mean, nine players, the most recent of which is a man with this kind of star power, I suppose you were talking about there, Owen Mario Balotelli. It's still actually not officially confirmed, but given that Balotelli has been there signing autographs at Melwood and so on, it does very much look as though it's yeah. going to go through. It would be a massive surprise now if it didn't. Um, now, here's an interesting example of Brendan Rogers in action. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was there was a kind of a funny moment from the other. We we did mention his categorical denial, or he said, "I can categorically tell you, Mario Balotelli will not be at Liverpool." That was like nearly three weeks ago now, so obviously he is. <laughs> and Rogers, that's what he says. I can, with just a hint of a smile, I'm playing around those handsome features. He said, "I can categorically tell you that I can't talk about it." <laughs> so everyone, everyone. Uh, uh, I would have, I would have chuckled. Result. It was, was it was, there. it was pretty funny. But then he says, uh, someone is asking him, "Oh, you know, you've got, you've obviously got this um, squad balance here that you need to try and preserve. It's delicate, and you know, you got a few egos. I mean, you got Daniel Surridge, player who maybe thought he was going to be number one now. Sitting Marabella, he's had to step on his toes a little bit. Is he maybe he going to feel a little bit threatened, a little bit insecure? This is Rogers' response, right? He says, I've said repeatedly that Daniel is a top talent, but we need to have more than one top talent in here. Dynamics are important, but I don't worry, because if you're a top player with a top mind, then you want other top players. If you're a top player and you're looking at another top player coming in, then you will be thinking, he can help us. If you're a top player with a top mentality, then you respond to the competition. 87 words, nine of them are top. Mm. If you're Daniel Sturridge... How do you feel? Yeah, what do you think Brendan Rogers has just said about you? I mean, whatever. Who can concept? Who even knows what all of that meant? I mean, I'm not sure if you knew if you if you were following each individual sentence. But what was the general impression that you're left with from his remarks there concerning Daniel Sturridge? That there may be doubts about whether he's a top player. Oh, if you think so? Really? I would. I would think the. I would think. What would you think? If you've got a problem, Daniel, then shove it. You might, you may not be tough. To me, it's as simple as Daniel Sturridge is a top player. It's like how many times can you fit the word "top" into a tiny series of sentences before that's all anyone remembers from what you said? Hmm. You know, it's like uh, I think. I mean, maybe maybe Brendan Rodgers really is uh, unimaginative enough not to be able to think of another word to use, so he avoids repeating himself. Or maybe there's something. Deliberate going on there when he speaks like that. I think there, I, I think there probably is. If he is subtly having a dig at Daniel Sturridge, as in my interpretation, do yeah, you think, I, you think I, he no, is? No, I think I'm going to roll back at that. To be honest, again, I thought that's kind of what you were looking for. Oh no, with, with the question, so I, I gave that to you. No, I think he's. I think. But he's, having thought about it now, he's brainwashing uh, Daniel Sturridge into thinking he's the greatest player in the world. Don't worry, Daniel, you're you're a top player. But uh, there was one other thing I saw over the weekend, which is the agent of Balotelli doing an interview, Mino Raiola. Uh, doing an interview in Corriere della Sera. And I have to say, you read the Andrea Pirlo bar, bar, uh, autobiography recently. Yep. Now, did you think that it was, in some ways, a, a, an unconventionally written book? 
the style of it was not what you usually would read in a... Uh... No, but I wasn't sure whether that was based, and a lot of people haven't read the book, but I, I wasn't sure whether that was based on the writing of it, as in the, the ghostwriter, or whether it's just Andrea Pirlo thinks in quite a colourful way about the game. I think it's actually, I mean, we're just reading the interview with with uh, Riola, the kind of questions that they ask him are just a lot more kind of playful or philosophical than you would find in a corresponding interview with an agent in an English uh, newspaper. Um, uh, you know, they've called you everything. Ignorant, cunning, an outlaw, a bandit. Um, you know, he's saying, yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm a simple pizza set and pizza chef's son, you know. His, his father emigrated from Napoli, uh, Napoli to Harlem in Holland when he was quite young. He says, no, I, will. I never made the pizza, but pizza making is a skillful job. You know, Mihailovic called me a pizza maker. I said, Mihailovic, uh, it's the greatest compliment you could ever give me to call me a, p- a pizza maker. You know, <laughs> this, kind of, this kind of stuff. Anyway, they go past all that and they go to, and they ask him a question, and what is the truth of Riola? You know, this is the kind of question that, you know, you don't often hear um, the Daily Mail sort of put to an agent if they, if they interview one. But basically, what he's saying here, the interesting thing about the Balotelli move, or on the face of it, is why would Mario Balotelli and Mina Raiola, his very famous agent, who represents Latan and, and, and Paul Pogba, guys like this, you know, he's, he's aggressively moved clients around for, for big transfer fees, made lots of money, ratcheting up the salary all the way. Why does he take a pay cut to go from Milan to Liverpool? Mm-hmm. He doesn't usually do that. But that's apparently what's happened here. So what's going on? Why is that happening? Um, he explains that the divorce from Milan... Uh, has, I've been working on the divorce from Milan for months. Um, but why, asked Carrier, I cannot explain it. A feeling, a sentiment, or a, a sensazione, a sentimento. <laughs> you know, so he's not really giving you any specifics. But he says there are no specifics. He says, you know, you, you might feel that there was a, a fight or an event, something happened. No, nothing could be for it. It's simply just the way that we feel about this. Um, you know, uh, essentially that's that's what's going on. And he, he made a kind of general point to Balotelli that it was unhealthy for him to be in it. And I said, I've always felt this. For him to be in uh, in Italy, it's very heavy responsibility for him. Everyone is talking about him. He has to be the leader. We found that he was not ready to be a leader here. And he'll go to Liverpool and they've got Steven Gerrard. And that will mean that Mario can just be one of the boys you know what I mean? This is kind of the point he's making. He won't be expected to carry all that extra responsibility. I don't know. It's, it's a, I'm not sure about this. I'm not sure whether I think Mino Raiola is giving the whole story here um, as to whether that, that is really a reason why he would take a big pay cut, as, as apparently they have. But he does say that they end on a playful note by saying, um, well, he mentions incidentally, Liverpool is the last resort. At the highest level, Yes, it's either all or nothing for him now. He, he's 24 now. He no longer has the excuse of age, which, I, you know, that's a big thing for his agent to say. But at the very end, they're talking about, oh, back to the, your old days, you know, you used to be a bit of a baller yourself. And he said, well, you know, I dreamed of being. He said, I was a, I was a champion, uh, but the only person who believed it was myself. I would have needed an agent like Mina Ryle. That's the end of Kennedy's report on sport. Flame hair, flame hair, flame for the truth, Mr. Ken Early. Mr. Ken Early. Mr. Ken Early. Mr. Ken Early. Every so often I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around and bite someone. John Hayes, I'm talking about, Owen. Yeah. John Hayes. Now, I always thought that was ridiculous. He had won the victory over himself. 
He loved Brendan Rogers. That's where it comes from. Thanks a lot, Pepe. Fair to say, anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now for you give it up. Let's talk a little bit more about Manchester United now after the draw against Sunderland. Jonathan Wilson is a Sunderland fan, of course, Jonathan. On the face of it, a 1-1 draw against Manchester United should be a great result, but you beat them at Old Trafford last year, and the way they are at the Manchester United are at the moment, was this maybe a game that got away for Sunderland? I think, yeah, I think up to a point it probably was. that Certainly at half-time, uh, I think the sense was that Sunderland haven't got back into the game. They, they, they looked a better team, and you sort of expected a, a bit of a surge in the second half. And that never never quite materialised. I mean, when Matt has scored, that that was against the run of play. It was then a little a little blip as someone sort of picked themselves up. But yeah, I, I thought the second half was was sort of pretty scrappy from both teams. And, and I mean, I suspect United will improve and come the end of the season. A one-one draw against them isn't that bad a result, and it's a better result than they got at home last season. But um, yeah, I think there was a, a slight sense of disappointment that maybe they were there for the taking, and, and Sutherland didn't quite didn't quite have the wherewithal or fluidity to to take advantage. Is the performance of Will Buckley on the right wing for Sunderland a sign that the tree of English football remains healthy as ever, but beneath the immediate top layer there? Oh, possibly. I mean, I, I thought he had a decent game yesterday, um, but then again, playing against United with with that three five two, there is space there for for wingers to attack. So you know it's an ideal game for for a winger to to thrive in. Um, yeah, we'll we'll see how he gets on. But no, it was a, a promising debut certainly. On the United side of things, Jonathan, the three five two system that he's trying to employ there. I mean, we do we pre season the fear might have been that English football was culturally resistant in some way to playing this kind of a system. Uh, maybe it's just the, the whole idea that it's, it's it's a system to suit the players was true in the World Cup, but are we seeing increasingly that it might not be true of the current Manchester United team? Possibly, yeah. I mean, it, it struck me as being a, a strange decision to to come in and say straight away, 3-5-2, that's what we're going to do. I mean, Van Gaal hadn't used it at all until March. He's a very late convert to it, and, and it was because of the, the, the friendly away against France the game which Kevin Stroutman was was injured, that he, all his plans for the World Cup he, he had to you know, rethink them. So it's a partly how to think of a way of playing without Stroutman, who you know he'd, he'd been key, and, and partly he was very worried, particularly by um, uh, Bruno Martins Indy, that the way that Benzema had, had taken him on in one on ones. So so Van Gaal went to that you know, went to a game between uh, Feyenoord and PSV within the back of his mind. This idea of I can't let my defenders get involved in one-on-one battles because they're not good enough at that to, to get away with playing two v two. So he, he then sees Feyenoord playing this back three with with a lot of his I think of of a back five Feyenoord played that, that that day. I think either three or four were, were going to be in the in in the Dutch's World Cup squad, and he he sort of had this revelation of well this is the way we've got to play. So it, it made sense for them then. Now whether that is also has created this, um, I don't know, some sort of epiphany in Van Gaal that this is the way modern football has to be played. This is the new revolution. Uh, I'm not sure, but it, it it struck me as being slightly odd that he came to United apparently with the plan of playing with a with a back three from the start. And you know, none of those defenders. I mean, not as many defenders left from last season, but none of those who are there have played it before. Are familiar with that, and I, I think you you know we've really seen that. Yeah, I mean, is there a sense in which? Anyone who tries to do this English football is going to is going to encounter scepticism, particularly at Manchester United. I mean, I've seen um, 
Paul Scholes criticising this system, you know, saying that it's a slow way of playing and so on. Gary Neville, well, Gary Neville's been a little bit more sitting on the fence, but you get the you get the impression there's lots of people aren't aren't sure about this. I read a piece recently by Rob Smythe about uh, talking about Alex Ferguson. He said in Alex Ferguson's fifteen hundred games as the manager of Manchester United, he played three at the back in maybe ten or fifteen games, uh, and refers to an episode at Aberdeen where Ferguson, I think it was Morton that his Aberdeen team always had a problem playing against. And he said, we tried everything against these guys yeah, and, and lists off a series of bizarre formations, one of which is three at the back. It's like, you know, we even we even went at three at the back. It was insane uh, in our attempts to, to find the formula to crack Morton. And that, you know, anyone who does it at, at, um, at Old Trafford is going to be, um, people immediately have a problem with it. The, the results have to be really good in order to for people not to say, well, I'm not sure about this 3-5-2. I guess that's true, but I mean, you know, if United take one point from the first two games of the season, following on from last season, people are always going to look for something to, to hang it on. To blame it on the three-five-two is a very, it's a very easy thing to do. And I, I was at I was at Tottenham yesterday when you know, QPR played the three-five-two and were utterly outplayed by Tottenham. And so there were people there saying, I mean, people in the press box, people around the press box, even saying, "Oh, three-five-two is nonsense. It just doesn't work." And then you were know, saying, "Well, yeah, QPR have lost both their games so far. United have, have taken one point from two. Nobody mentions the fact that Hull had taken four points in two games playing with the back three and did very well with it last season. So I, I think it's it's too simplistic to suggest that the formation itself doesn't work. You saw it a little bit last last season that people saying, oh, the, the, the ridiculous high line that um, Andreas Boas is playing, that just doesn't work. Well, Tottenham are doing it this season. It's working perfectly well. It's to do with the players you have, it's to do how, with how it's implemented. I think the, the, the one thing I should say about why it is logical to play a 3-5-2 United is that I, I think... If you if you look at that squad, the the obvious strength of that that squad is Rooney and Van Persie. So if you're going to play them as a pair, unless you're going to go to a pretty old fashioned four four two, even then with that four four two, do you not really have central midfielders good enough to play as a pair in the middle of midfield? I think Van Gaal's looked at that and thought, well, look, we've got to play three players in the middle of midfield. So there's two ways of doing that: you either play a four three three or you play a three five two. And if you play a 4-3-3, it's then very hard to play Rooney and Van Persie. So playing a 3-5-2 is a way of getting that Rooney-Van Persie partnership on the pitch and, and working together while adding another player in the middle of midfield. What about, though, it, the, the the other answer that Brendan Rodgers found to that question, which is why not play a, a midfield diamond? We may be getting into how many angels on the head of a pin territory here, Jonathan, but at the same time, you know, he, he found a way of playing Suarez, Sturridge and... Um, you know, four players effectively in central midfield. I mean, nobody seems to consider that as an alternative, and, and yet it was extremely effective for Liverpool. That that is an alternative, and it's not. You know, a four four two diamond is not a million miles away from three five two because you expect the width to come from the from the uh, from the full backs from the wing backs, and you expect that holding midfielder to drop in and become a third centre back. So, yeah, that, that's not a million miles away. You, you then look at personnel. United, even having lost um, Village and Ferdinand. They still have in in uh, Johnny Evans and Phil Jones and Chris Smalling. They still have three quite decent centre backs. I'm not sure they've got a player who could automatically sit in 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 that what's quite a difficult position. I think at the back of midfield in a diamond, Darren Fletcher maybe. But you know, I think there's always going to be a question mark about his fit. Or certainly, there was always going to be a question mark about how fit he is. Could Michael Carrick do that? Well, possibly, but but he's injured. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I, basically, I think you know, essentially the, the difference between a four-four-two diamond and a three-five-two is one one player, whether he plays at centre back and steps forward, whether he plays at back and field and steps back, 
And I can understand why Van Gaal, looking at, at, at the squad, would think, well, actually, it's probably better equipped to, to go from a three at the back you know, with a player stepping forward rather than the other way around. That possibly doesn't take into account sufficiently the, the cultural resistance to, to playing like that and, and the fact that it, you're within England and the fact that none of that United side have played like that before. How easily does the £60 million man, Angel Di Maria, fit into this system, Jonathan? I think Di Maria would fit into any system. I think he's a he's a great player. I think it's an extraordinary decision from from Real Madrid to to offload him. I mean, I guess maybe if they get 60, 65 million, that that tempers that slightly. But yeah, he's man of the match in Champions League final. I thought he was Argentina's best player at, at the World Cup. I thought they really missed him in the semi final and the final. Uh, he, he's a he's a very tactically intelligent player. He 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 might not have quite the glitz or the glamour of, of certain other players at Real Madrid at the minute. But I, I think. His, his, you know, the, the the way he's able to to accommodate other players, his, his sort of lack of ego, the way he's he's willing to to temper what you'd say is his natural game to, for the good of a team. I, I think he's a great asset. So if he comes into a three-five-two, you you'd imagine he would he would play as on on the left of the the three in the middle. I guess he could just about play as left wing back. Certainly, he'd be more natural at that than than say Ashley Young. Uh, or maybe this is a sign that Van Gaal's looking to, to go to a four-three-three, and then he can play either on the left of three in the middle or left of three up front. You don't agree then with the widely held opinion that Manchester United might be overpaying here based on their desperation to sign a big name player. I know I think that's also true, but I guess you get to get to a point of what what is the value of a player if he desperately needs something then. And, and the other clubs know you desperately need it, then, then the price goes up. And that's you know United's fault for not having done the transfer business earlier and for you know, getting themselves in a situation where the whole world can look at them and say, well, one point from two games, they're struggling, they clearly desperately need personnel, there's a week to go in the window, let, let's, you know, let, let, let's sting them a bit more than, than possibly these players are worth. Yeah, It will mean that they've spent more than £200 million on new players in the past uh, 12 months. Do you think then, you think with, with that kind of uh, investment, that's, Big, you know, it's, it's the kind of sums of money that Chelsea and Man City spend to build their uh, quite dominant sides. Am I just United close with Di Maria to, to having a team like that? No, not at all. I mean, I think they're, they're starting from a lower base, which sounds odd, but uh, you know, you, you look at, at the team that played at, at, at Sunderland yesterday, how many regular internationals are in that side? Well, Van Persie and, and Rooney, and, and I, don't, I mean, that, that's pretty much it, isn't it? Well, De Gea, I guess, in the Spain squad, but you know, it, it's it's not a great team. Uh, I think there's also an issue that you look at the spending City made on last, even last summer when they brought in well the four players and De Michaelis at the end of the window. But it was a clear structure they were moving towards. They were clearly looking to play uh, a four-four-two with David Silva tucking in on the left and and Jesus Navas giving them width on the right, and you could see how that would all fit together. Um, and then you know, the signings they made this summer, you know, an extra holding midfield, which allows them to play with a 4-3-3, as they did at the end of the game against Newcastle last week. Uh, another centre-back, because you know, there's obviously problems with who, who's going to partner a company in central defence. So you, you can see a real structure to, to their signings. Similarly with Chelsea, that, that since Mourinho arrived, he's had a, you know, clearly he knows how his team, he wants his team to look. You know, Matic coming in has made a huge difference. They clearly need a centre-forward, so Diego Costa comes in. Um Fabregas gives them a bit of guile and a bit of drive from, from centre midfield they perhaps lacked. So you, you can see the logic to all those signings. Now, with the best will in the world, I, I can't understand what Juan Mata was doing. I don't know why they signed Juan Mata. Great player, great professional, but was he what they needed when they already had three players who could play in that position? I, I don't think he was. I think that's 30 odd million that could have been better spent elsewhere if, if, if money becomes an object. All right, Jonathan, brilliant stuff. Thank you.
Cheers, thanks. I knew the place. Clough, that he calls me Ravi, didn't know them. He said to me, what can you do that the boss hasn't done? You the boss. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. But there's no way you can win it better. Why not? Only, no, 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 no. But that's the only hope I've got. We've only, we only lost four matches. Then, but that, well, I can only lose three. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. Calls me Ravi. Good luck. Now that might that might be you know aiming for utopia, and it might be might mean being a little bit stupid, but that is the way I am. I'm a little bit stupid regarding this type of thing. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. Jonathan rates Di Maria pretty highly there, Ken. Just if you if you have to pay all that money, then. So be it, but they need him. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the whole point about the transfer fees is that they are a reflection of how much money clubs have. And that's why they're, you know, they're, they seem to have really um, spiralled up. And I mean, we've been talking about Shane Long, poor old Shane Long, who keeps being used as a, uh, essentially as a, as a stick to beat himself with. Um, the, the One of the most frequent things you hear about the Balotelli deal is, well, Shane Long costs 12 million. You know, Balotelli should be. You know, 16, 16 is not much more than 12, therefore Balotelli must be cheap. Um, you know, Shane Long is 12 million, largely because of the fact that clubs have so much more money than they did even this time last year, because mm. of the new television deal being vastly, you know, 50% more. That's why he's gone up. Angel Di Maria is being transferred between two clubs, well, at the end of this season, it should be the case that you know, Manchester United's turnover is already beyond 500 million euros a year, and Real Madrid's passed that some time ago. You know, I mean, when, when the clubs are making this much money and they're buying and selling big players, the fees are going to reflect the underlying um, size of their, you know, turnover. Um, it's I think not that, an arbitrary judgment on the quality of the player. No, it doesn't really have to do with the quality of the player. Well, I mean, I mean, it's only the the better players who tend to get transferred for you know the biggest money. But it's not a question of saying, wow, you know, uh, Angel Di Maria is now considered to be better than Zidane. No, yeah. Zidane was transferred for what forty nine million in two thousand and one. You know, I mean, uh, well, if you were to compare the turnovers um, now, you no, know, but Shane Long's was then. was it was this summer. That's why it's more relevant. I think it's actually more relevant to compare, say, Balotelli to Shane Long. Yeah. Then compare Di Maria to Zidane. Well, one thing, one point that should be made on that Balotelli Shane Long thing is that Shane Long has been transferred three times in the last, I think, four seasons, and each time the transfer fee has gone up from West Brom, where it was, I think, what was it, five, six million, um, to Hull, where they they played seven and a half, I think, and now to Southampton, twelve. Balotelli has also been has been transferred three times, and each time the fee has gone down. So. Uh, I mean, for instance, Man City bought him for nearly 30 million. Milan bought him for a little over 20. And now Liverpool are buying him for 16. So uh, maybe that tells you a little bit more about those two players than simply comparing the crude figures that they uh, are being transferred for. Our first show of the week is ready for you. We talked a lot about the Mayo Kerry game and also about Limerick as a venue for the replay. You may, mm. you may have heard the replay has been set for there. Schenker, none too impressed. It's a kit, Bone. That's what the man said. That's what Jenkins said. Andrew McLaughlin was also on the show. Now we are joined by Ed Malian of the Mirror to talk about Crystal Palace, who provided us with most of the 
the fodder, I guess, so far Ed, for the type of stories that people like to talk about early on in the season. They lost to West Ham now. They've no manager, lost both their games. There was a Malky Mackay debacle as well. Um, is there a danger this season could fall off the rails by the end of August? Well, I think the only thing you can hope is that it's uh, it's quite early to have a crisis, so you've got plenty of time to recover. Um, I think Palace last year looked relegated by October or November. Uh, well, even earlier than that, you could, you could say relegated by September last year. And, uh, you know, all you need to do in the Premier League is put together four or five back-to-back wins, as we saw with West Ham, as we saw with Palace. And suddenly you fly out the relegation zone. I think the uh, the Premier League has about 10 kind of pretty poor teams who are all much of a muchness. And I think uh, if you're going to have a crisis, you might as well have it now and give yourself plenty of time to get over it. Yeah, certainly that's the optimistic way of looking at it. I mean, I don't know how much of uh, an impact the Mackay issue had. Uh, how close were they to actually having that deal done when they heard the bombshell news? I mean, from what I understand it, you know, it was it was virtually done. He'd already given a couple of transfer targets to the club. Uh, you know, to start, <laughs> one of the big issues here is that the transfer window is kind of running out and uh, they wanted to get moving on those things. And then uh, obviously the, uh, the news dropped in their email inbox and text message inboxes. Uh, respectively, and uh, it became very obvious very quickly that the deal couldn't go through. Um, now, uh, what, happened, what happened with Mackay and, and Cardiff and Moody was obviously a very calculated thing from from the Cardiff end, uh, and Palace had just been caught in the crossfire. They might have dodged a bullet in terms of the fact that Moody and Mackay aren't going to be uh, running the club based on uh, the content of some of these alleged messages and you know the other allegations. But I think... Uh, also, you know, they're going to go for a man now who's going to be something different. I think uh, I've got a feeling it's going to be an upcoming young sort of manager and they're going to be given uh, a lot of money to spend pretty quickly. And uh, it's going to have to be that because there's not much else out there. Just uh, on the subject of the, the Mackay Moody thing, I mean, obviously Mackay hadn't been appointed, but Moody was there for a while. What was his record um, at, at Crystal Palace? I mean, he's, there seemed to be tensions between himself and Tony Pulis. Um, but is, would you see him as somebody who is a loss to the club? I mean, not, notwithstanding all this stuff that's come out, based on everything we knew about Ian Moody up till last week, uh, did he seem to be doing a good job there? I think Ian Moody was more of an asset to the club um, if he was paired with a manager who, who wasn't so resistant to, uh, to, him, to, to his role, basically. Um, Pulis, as we know, is more of a sort of dictatorial uh, manager, you know, the old school, the Alex Ferguson model of manager who is in charge of everything and delegates what they want and then kind of takes charge of everything else. Moody is someone who has extensive contacts in France and Italy and was, was very keen on a lot of uh, players overseas and players with interesting profiles that perhaps uh, Pulis wasn't so keen on. If you look at Pulis's transfer record, I believe he's only signed but two players before in his, all of his time at Stoke who either weren't playing in England already or English or uh, British sorry uh, Jeff Cameron from the MLS and I can't remember who the other one is uh, but you know so that kind of mix of, of a man looking to exploit other markets and a man who was very intent on uh, taking risk-free players from in and around Britain was always going to be a kind of weird marriage uh, I think Moody would have worked better with another manager who was far more receptive to him and his ideas so ultimately I think we're never going to know uh, what sort of good he could have done at Palace but his position was ultimately untenable I think 
It's interesting that you said that that you think it's it's maybe going to be a younger manager, kind of an up and coming type of manager, because the last time, well, the, the most recent thing I've heard Steve Parrish say actually comes from Keith Millen, who said, "Oh, he's in no rush," which made you think, "Well, there's only there's only a few days left for them to actually sign any players, so maybe he needs to to be in a little bit more of a rush." But I, I think That's I saw not him quite right. Um... Incidentally, I, I, I mean, he probably said that, but I, I talked to someone very high up at Palace on Saturday before the game, and they said they want it done by Monday or Tuesday. Parish is literally they realize, tearing yeah, his They realise that, they, you know, they've got to get players in and they've got to get a manager in. And now they've got to get a sporting director in as well. But the first priority is Monday or Tuesday is what I was told. So I think today is going to be some serious decisions made, maybe tomorrow morning. Um, we've got a League Cup game against Walsall, which is obviously fairly irrelevant but uh, you know Palace needs something from that Newcastle game to avoid going international international break on zero points he did say that did he, did he not when he was um, was it was it in his interview with Gary Lineker I'm talking about Steve Parrish here that he, yeah. he's looking for a manager with experience or Premier League experience which would narrow the field down Intimate considerably Premier League experience was his term I think uh, <laughs> as a, he said um, so intimate Premier League experience as a player and or as a manager um, oh, okay. So it could be. So I mean, that, when, because be he, he did specify the player bit, so that's why people thought it might be a Sherwood or someone like that. Um, and obviously, Tim Sherwood has since written his account uh, of <laughs> his account of of why he pulled out in his own terms of the Palace uh, running. Uh, and I think uh, you're going to see, you know, Parish realizes that Palace need that, and, and Tony Pulis obviously brought that and we saw immense success with that but if you look at their record of hiring managers since they've taken over the club in 2010 they've hired four managers the first was a complete unmitigated disaster in George Burley uh, perhaps he let them off because that was you know their, their first foray into into football ownership since then they got Doogie Friedman who took the club from the bottom of the championship up to first in the championship then Ian Holloway who took the club um, into the Premier League and then Tony Pulis, who took the club from relegation zone up to 11th in the Premier League. So they've got a good track record of hiring guys. So if they do take a risk on someone, uh, say a Paul Clement sort of figure, or another guy that's been named, Dermot Drummy, uh, Chelsea's international head coach, um, whatever sort of management structure they're working in, which would be you know uh, two or three key figures in there, I think that that risk, you can trust them with it because so far... The last three managers have all been very good appointments. Any inkling who it is going to be, Ed? I mean, everyone's gone very quiet and it's gone, uh, yeah, it's gone very quiet. And it's also a very peculiar search now because, you know, the the egos in football dictate that if you're not, you know, there are managers who, if they're not first choice, they're not interested in the job. We we saw that when Palace were hiring Pulis um, and that that month-long search. Uh, if you make your first choice and they and they reject you, or in this case, something completely unexpected happens, then um, there will be a lot of managers who just obviously aren't keen on the role um, because bit, yeah, it's affronted them. Small bit precious and maybe maybe a bit oversensitive. I don't know, but listen, uh, Ed, it's great to talk to you. Thanks so much for talking. No, no problem. Mate. Thank you, Ed Malian of the Mirror. There, see Neil Lennon who was the bookies' favourite, was on match day two last night, and he was pretty clear that he hasn't been contacted by the club mm. so you could, you could maybe scratch him well it depends how 
how much urgency there is. Uh, we were debating that there. If it's supposed to be done today or tomorrow, I think you can rule Neil Lennon out because he seemed pretty genuine in saying that they haven't, I haven't heard anything. Yeah, um, uh, and <laughs> I think previously he was asked about the Norwich shot when it came up and uh, it was a slightly different tone. He was slightly denial. less convincing, <laughs> I remember, when he was trying to deny that. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, who, who really knows um, what they I mean, had mentioned some of the names there. Um, and hopefully we'll have an answer pretty soon. That's just about it from us today. If you want the chance to win a Samsung Galaxy Tab 3, then please just answer a few simple questions. irishtimes.com forward slash podcast survey is where you need to go there to take part in that. That's irishtimes.com forward slash podcast survey. A reminder, we've got two extra shows for you this week to celebrate our 250th episode starting tomorrow, Tuesday, with the legendary Bill O'Hurley. He's going to join us in studio. You can listen all the usual ways, irishtimes.com forward slash second captains, SoundCloud, iTunes, and the Podcast Republic app. Thanks very much to you, Ken. And to you too, Owen. And to you, Kieran. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Kieran. Thanks for listening and thanks for all the support over the 250 shows that we've done so far. We'll leave you today with another memory from one of those programs. Reluctantly crouched at the starting line. How are you, lads? Engines pumping and thumping in time. I had a couple of experience of international tournaments. The green light flashes, the flags go up. So we were confined to a hotel with nothing to do. Churning and burning, they yearn for the cup. They Back then, we had no mobiles. There was nothing we were watching. There was no laptops, no internet, no Facebook, Twitter, none of that back then. To ring home, you had to queue up for ages with a big water cash. But there was one afternoon, there were seven of us in a bedroom. I'm not going to name any names, right? And there was suggestion by someone I don't know how to phrase this but why don't we have a competition where how will I phrase it we pleasure ourselves we pleasure ourselves we pleasure ourselves fella who can who can who can maybe complete the job first is the winner we pleasure ourselves and I swear to god myself and another fella left five lads um, competed with one another we pleasure ourselves and there was a couple of golf putters there, so we just put a ball up and down all day long, trying to hit a Ribena ball.